fourth watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be an excursion into the ancient realm of megalithic structures and some of the mysteries that surround them. Scientists and archaeologists alike try to rationalize and cover up the supernatural history of the world, and in this, providing disinformation to detract the world from the biblical narrative of the fallen angels and the giants. But tonight, we work our way through some of these mysteries and strange accounts. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the 4th Watch Radio Network, I call this episode Megalithic Marvels, Footprints of the Fallen, with special guest, D. Olsen. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the fourth watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H. R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. Also, a couple quick notes. As many of you know, I'm only broadcasting the Fourth Watch Thursday show every other week while I'm working on the upcoming film. But be sure to tune in to Omega Frequency with BDK airing Mondays on the Fourth Watch. Lastly, FourthWatchRadio.com was temporarily shut down without me knowing anything about it, and for nearly three and a half weeks nonetheless. And that is another story of spiritual warfare for another time. But I want to apologize for any inconvenience that was caused by this, and we are not only back up and running on a new server, but it has been redesigned and supercharged with a much more user-friendly interface and some awesome new features, so be sure to check it out. Now, tonight we dig into a wide range of topics, spanning from megalithic structures of the Nephilim all the way to modern-day giants, strange artifacts, and even discoveries of humanoids on Native American land. And that's just scratching the surface. Tonight we're joined by a fellow researcher, adventurer, blogger, and a fellow brother in Christ who's doing some amazing work, and we are excited to have him on the fourth watch. We're running short on time this evening, so let's go ahead and welcome on D. Olson of MegalithicMarvels.com. D, welcome to the fourth watch. How are you tonight? Man, I'm so good. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Huge fan of your radio show. Man, it's awesome to have you on, dude. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. And um, I got to tell you, uh, I don't know when it was, but Gary Wayne sent me an email and he says, hey, do you know do you know who D. Olson is? Or have you ever heard of megalithicmarvels.com? And I'm like, no, I haven't. And he says, well, you've made, uh, you and I both made the top 17 researchers of 2017. And um, it was really cool to, to get connected with you. And tonight we're going to be talking about 
First of all, we're going to talk about megalithic marvels, why it's important to understand the truth about the megalithic marvels, as you call them on the website, why these things are important from a research perspective, how they fill in some of the gaps, how they explain and make certain parts of scripture pop so much more. It's like it makes certain scriptures really come alive. And to think that we're dealing with these structures that are thousands of years old, they're way too big to have been built by humans. You know, uh, one of the popular lies in pop culture is that it was the Jewish slaves that built the pyramids. Um, you know, I mean, I've heard that all my life. I'm sorry. They, 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 that, that's just OK. I'm not going to call it that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that's just ridiculous. And I get I get passionate, D, because, you know, you don't don't come at me telling me that uh, Jewish slaves built the pyramids. Now, granted, uh, some of the pyramids are copies of older ones. And, you know, I, I get it. Just like with some of the Indian mounds, uh, we have certain Indian mounds that are recreations, but they're smaller. Uh, and, and, you know, the smaller ones, D, as you know, that when you see recreations of megalithic structures, the technology is not there. You know, the numbers don't add up. The ley lines don't add up, as Joseph Riverwin says. Um, you know, the technology, you just, they can't recreate. Humans can't recreate that technology. And we're going to get into a handful of really awesome things from the website. But go ahead and tell us just a little bit about where you got started. How did you come up with this idea to create such an awesome website um, where people can learn about these things? Like, like what was your, your drive in this? Yeah, man. So I was one of these kids that grew up, you know, fascinated by dinosaurs. And um, as a believer, you know, growing up reading the Bible and Sunday school, learning about these giants in Genesis 6 and Goliath. And, and I was just always so intrigued and asking mom and dad about what was going on. You know, what happened to the dinosaurs? Who were these giants? And, you know, it always seemed like uh, you'd kind of get some flannel graph answer, you know. Oh, the giants were just some big, tall people. And, um, so I was always intrigued by these subjects, right? And then uh, as I got older, you know, you do as much research as you can, um, but it's like you never quite connect those dots. And then probably about 2011, um, man, it's just like stuff started colliding. Um, and I think I, it started for me, I saw some pictures of some megalithic structures in Peru. And um, it just blew my mind, right? Seeing that these were like mortarless megaton blocks, Um where you couldn't even hardly fit a piece of paper through, like blew my mind. And so really just began to research that. And, um, you know, I lived in California at the time, so I was um, loved cave exploring and I started to learn about Lovelock Cave and I went out and visited that and um, really started to just follow so many great researchers in the field like yourself, like, you know, Steve Quayle and, Marzuli and Alberino and you know it's just like all these it started to get clear right and uh, I kind of have a communications blogging background and so man I was watching all these incredible videos and listening to all these amazing podcasts and I was hard-pressed to find like a consistent quality blog out there um you know, from a biblical perspective that was addressing these incredible topics of ancient technology, megaliths, the Nephilim, prehistoric civilization. So that's kind of how I got started in a nutshell. And um, that's kind of what megalithic marvels is all about. It's interesting because you mentioned some of these, uh, you, you get down to South America and some of these, we'll just say this architecture. 
there's no mortar between the stones. And, and not to mention the stones, they're, they're gargantuan. I mean, these stones are massive. And as with many of these, these megalithic structures, um, people are finding out that the type of stones used, and not only are they giant stones, but in many cases, the stones aren't even native to that area. So somehow these, these crazy stones were transported sometimes hundreds to thousands of miles, and they're massive in and of themselves, and they're, they're, they're brought from far away, and they're set up to build these monuments. Um, that right there tells you that humans could not have moved these stones that much of a distance, uh, let alone move these stones even 10 feet. But the, the thing about the mortarless construction that we see down in South America, and, and there, there's a handful, but uh, the one that you're speaking of specifically, where you can't put a piece of paper between the rocks, that has always baffled me. Because they have to be cut in such perfection. And you're talking about stones, and, and if, if my memory serves me correctly, the stones, some of them have up to 12 sides. And it might be 16, but I'm pretty sure 12 was the average. It's been a while since I've researched this. Uh, I broke it down in uh, Nephilim Chronicles that I did uh, years ago about uh, giants in the Americas. But we're talking about these stones were cut with precision, with technology that we don't have, and it, 12-sided stones all fitting together, or, or you know, it blows my mind. Absolutely. Humans can't do that. We don't have technology today that can do that. Right, and when we look at the walls, for example, at um, Sacsayhuaman down there um, outside Cusco, I mean, these are interlocking blocks that are literally polygonal, like you said, that connect on multiple sides. Some of them weigh as much as like 125 tons, and it's crazy. The, the wall at Sacsayhuaman, um, the blocks literally go 12 feet underground, the foundational stones from what you can see. So that's why they're still standing. They were created to be earthquake proof. And um, obviously conventional archaeologists attribute the Inca to their construction. But like you said, you brought up, Justin, um, how would they, for example, if the Inca, if the Inca had just bronze tools, um, like mainstream archaeology would tell us back then, how could they have extracted them and then transported them over a series of mountains, um, which the quarry at least is over five miles away? These are the questions that can't be answered with the age of rationalism. And, and unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we live in an age of rationalism, uh, and it takes its toll not just on our understanding of science, but it takes its toll on our understanding of the Bible. And you know, when you have a rationalist approach you're always going to end up with more questions than answers. And that's, that's a problem. And, and I'm with you on that. It's, it's unbelievable. Now you said polygonal. Uh, I, you know, I, I was probably off on the 12 sides. I don't remember all of it, but um, regardless, this is a marvel. This falls right into the category of the title of the website. These are things that people marvel at because there's no answers for them. I mean, we're dealing with, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. Okay. I was going to save this, but I'm just going to go ahead and, and just let the cat out of the bag. When you're dealing with, there's some really great scholars out there, and I'm not going to name names because they're my friends and they're my colleagues, but there's some great scholars who I think are great resources for many topics, but there's kind of a growing trend right now, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, D. Uh, there's a lot of quote-unquote scholars out there in the Christian realm, even the Christian truth realm, and they've kind of jumped on this bandwagon about giants not exceeding 9 to 10 feet. Right. And I, this is probably going to blow some people's minds to hear that there's scholars that are saying this, even people in the supernatural realm, uh, you know, saying these things. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, if a giant was merely 10 feet tall, 
then right then you have no understanding of how these megalithic marvels have been built. Right. A 10-foot tall giant, that does not fit into the the biblical narrative unless you're dealing with, we'll say, fifth, sixth, seventh generation. Absolutely. Uh, the first generation of giants, you know, could have been, could and probably were way larger, taller, bigger than, you know, the generations that followed. And um, again, all over the world are these megalithic marvels. And that's why, again, that was my initial inspiration to really start researching was beholding, you know, what appears to be these pre this pre-flood architecture all over the earth, whether it's the walls at Sakse Waman or the Great Pyramid of Giza or the Astronomical Monument of Stonehenge. Um, these were constructed with some form of ancient technology, and the reality is they confound today's experts. So they defy our greatest modern engineering. And um, for me as a believer, Justin, it really just uh, inspires my faith and makes me look at the Bible a whole new way and just go, whoa, you know, when I start studying Genesis chapter 6 and and when you look at ancient manuscripts such as the book of Enoch and many of the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been found and even the writings of guys like Josephus, um, the oral traditions of many Native American tribes, I know you're getting into that with your incredible new film series coming out, but all of it points to this race of uh, hybrid giants that once walked the earth and literally wreaked havoc upon humanity people when they get to the book of enoch they're going to find some things about the giants that you know, you're not going to find this information anywhere else i mean there are things that are so mind-blowing in the book of enoch and i mean it's a prime source for a lot of our information on on we'll just say the pre-flood giants but one thing that sticks out is when you get into the height and I, i've mentioned this anytime i mention this on the show there's always somebody that has something negative to say but Let's just say loosely, okay, loosely, the Giants could be 400 plus feet tall. Now, first generation, that's that, and I say that because that's where the debate comes in. People say, well, how can a Giant be that tall? I don't know, but that's that's with us doing the best we can with the words that were used yeah. um, based on the language. But let's just say conservatively, you're still dealing with Giants, even if we're ultra conservative, like we're so conservative that we're wearing whitey tighties. Uh, we're still running the idea. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that, but we're still running on the idea that the giants were well over 40 feet tall because look, the Bible says they were taller than the cedars of Lebanon. Um, in number, the numbers account, you have the spies saying that we are grasshoppers at the feet of the giants. And that means that a giant could literally lift their leg up and stomp somebody. Uh, I'm sorry. That's not a 10 foot giant. That's not a 15 foot giant. We're dealing with a giant that would have to be well over 25 feet tall to fit into this, this narrative that the Bible really lays out clearly. So that's how these things were built. It connects so many dots for, I believe, the believer um, when you can start to understand the whole Genesis, Genesis 6 narrative um, that, that Lucifer was literally trying to create, recreate humanity in his image. And... You know, one of the greatest arguments, you know, that non-believers have is, man, is God psychotic? Why is he, you know, sending Jonah to save the Ninevites who were a very oppressive, wicked people? And then why, on the other hand, is he telling, you know, the children of Israel to wipe out the Canaanites, right? Um, and so when I start to study these subjects 
and realized there was so much more going on in the days of Noah, genetic manipulation, um, it helps you to get the flood, right? It helps you to understand, um, man, there's so much more going on here than just what I might have learned on the flannel graph in Sunday school. And the end result for me, at least, is, man, it just it sure bolsters my faith in, in Jesus Christ and the Word of God and how deep and amazing and epic it is. And, um, you know, I, I've dealt with um, teenagers a lot and um, had the opportunity to minister to a lot of them in different ministries. And, man, they come alive learning about these subjects. And uh, especially guys, they're like, this is incredible. And so uh, I just believe that God is doing an awakening um, where the church is being awakened to um, to get the Genesis 6 narrative and what it means for today. Well, when you realize how the the supernaturalism is involved in all of these these pre flood or antediluvian monuments, these structures, you realize that there was something supernatural going on with that. And when the average person can, we'll just say the average Christian, when they can grasp that, when they realize that there's something supernatural about this, they realize that there's got to be something supernatural about God too. Because if the enemy has supernatural abilities, surely the Creator does too. And so I think that's another aspect of our of our faith. You know, for for sharing our faith, we grab onto some of these hot topics that that you know they're they're blowing people's minds around the world, and we say, look, this is what we know about these things. But now let me tell you the biblical perspective to these very monuments, the biblical perspective to the giants, the ones who built these things. And then furthermore, let me tell you about Satan's plan to deceive everybody through his occult sciences and how you can be safe from the deception. So it's really it's a very important aspect of end times ministry to be ready to give an example of any of these things at any given time. See, the Bible tells us to be ready to preach the gospel in season and out of season. Paul says, become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. So we need to understand the deceptions. We have to be ready to share these things with people because we know that the deceptions surrounding these things are so heavy. And so they go to a website like Megalithic Marvels. They're going to be able to read articles about individual stories, you know, and they're going to be able to have a better understanding. And one of the things I wanted to bring up here, these things were built to stand the test of time on this earth. And I believe that where we find these megalithic structures, I believe that even to this very day, there are satanic rituals taking place amidst those structures. There's something about them. And I believe that cults of the world, tribes of the world, governments of the world, they're still gathering at different times of the year around these structures in these discrete locations, strategic locations, and they're performing their age-old satanic rituals. What, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, everywhere that you see these megalithic marvels, as I call them, um, I mean, there is a cult worship going on like mad. And uh, it was interesting watching Doc Marquis, uh, one of his latest films, There Were Giants. I thought he really made that an interesting connection with um, – you know, for example, Stonehenge and a lot of these uh, megalithic structures is where there is not only a cult worship, but especially in Europe, that seems to be where crop circles are right around that. You know, and he, he relates it a lot to all of the blood that has been spilled at these sites. 
Tell us about Easter Island, man. I, I have to ask because you've started a, a series on your website, and, and that's been one of those things that's, man, Easter Island has always blown my mind. I mean, the statues are creepy as all get out, but tell us a little bit about the secrets of the Moai. Am I saying that right? Moai, yes. Um, yeah, this is my latest investigative series. I'm really excited about it. Um, I started part one last month. I usually do like a three-part series. And it's crazy. I am literally learning so much more as I do this series. It's like I had to kind of put it on hold just to, you know, collect all this information because Easter Island, it's it's so over photographed. You know, everybody has heard of Easter Island and seen the statues, right, where they kind of just almost brush it off. It's like a song you've heard on the radio so many times that you used to like that you don't care about anymore. Um, at least that's kind of the perspective I've, I've found that people have about Easter Island. But again, wherever you see these megalithic marbles, there's always something else going on. Right. And so as I began to study Easter Island, um, I just began to learn some crazy stuff. So I'll give you some just basics. Um, so Easter Island is situated on the Nazca Plate. It's a volcanic uh, tectonic hotspot west of South America. And um, the surface of the island is just like 63 miles. So it's a pretty small island, but it's literally, um, it's the most remote inhabited island on the planet. Okay, so that right there is kind of interesting, right? And um, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so it's a big deal. And uh, in 1722, the first European ever recorded to have set foot on Easter Island was this Dutch explorer named Jacob Rogovin. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And he was originally on his way to find this other fabled land that was supposed to exist. Uh, and instead, he, he runs into um, the Polynesian name for the island is Rapa Nui. And he named it Easter Island because his ship landed there on Easter Sunday, April 5th. Imagine that. And so um, I love to find like this uh, Jacob Rogovin's, you know, his, his ship logs. And you start reading through and you pull out all the stuff that is not, you know, necessarily politically correct that you would read uh, from today's secular researchers, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Because these guys, they weren't politically correct, you know, and. And so he talks about, um, man, just I break down in my first blog post some of the crazy, um, almost cultic dances that the, that Rogovin references that he saw the natives doing and how they were blown away at these statues. And um, but again, as you you'd have to read the blog to really get the, the full brunt of it. But the crazy thing is about it is how did the civilization out in the middle of nowhere um, come up with their own, you know, they have their own tablets. They, they basically had like their own um, almost Egyptian hieroglyphs that they had written. And when you start studying the oral tradition of these Eastern, Eastern Islanders, they say that the megalithic statues known as the Moai, um, they say in their oral traditions that they were representations of chiefly deified ancestors. Right. And so 
you've asked yourself, who, who were these ancestors, right? And when you look at the features of the Moai, I mean, elongated heads and weird-shaped bodies. And then what's really fascinating, I'm going to break this down in one of my next blog posts, is just like we see in Peru at Sacsayhuaman and these other sites, guess what's on Easter Island? You have these megalithic, polygonal, mortarless construction walls. And that's one thing that is often not known about Easter Island is that these same walls are there. And again, wherever these megalithic walls are, and I'm going to have pictures of them, um, again, I believe those were built by the giants. Okay? And so if you've got megalithic walls on Easter Island, um, then you got to ask yourself, do we really believe like conventional, you know, archaeology tells us that the Eastern Islanders just simply chiseled these out of the volcano and somehow carried them miles to their destination? Well, they, they talk about these chiefly deified ancestors, and I think the, the wording there is kind of telling. Um, chiefly deified. I mean, we, we know what ancestors are, obviously, <laughs> but... They're ancient, chiefly deified ancestors. That's what they're called. Uh, the only thing that comes to mind is hybrids. Hybrids. I mean, because they're, they're, the humans there are ancestors of these, these entities, these beings, and they're chiefly deified. They were at least chiefly deified in their culture on their land. All I could think about is these are part human, part fallen angel. That's the only thing that I could even makes sense. I mean, the wording itself seems to explain itself. But if you're dealing with an island where the, you know, these these ancestors, the we'll just say the the government, if you want to call it the government of the island or the the hierarchy is made up of these highly regarded megalithic hybrid gods, these chiefly deified ancestors, it makes no I mean, it answers all the questions right there. I mean, this is where you're getting everything that you see on the island. And going further than that, I just want to comment on the features. Anybody who's Googled, you know, Easter Island or maybe seen a, a documentary on, you know, Discovery or Travel Channel or, or whatever, you know, you're going to notice the features of these things. They're very creepy looking. I mean, they don't look like normal humans. They don't look like a normal Nephilim, at least as far as, you know, the mind would portray. Right. But there's something very strange about them. They're odd looking. Yeah, very interesting. And I'm really excited for part two of this series. Uh, and the news has been leaking out the last, you know, 10 years about the full bodies of the Moai statues. But for most of this century, the 1900s, you know, even in the 1800s, since Rogavine was there, people have just assumed they were mostly just big heads, you know, down to the necks. And that was it um, until archaeologists started to dig and realize these got have full bodies. Have you seen the pictures? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And, and I mean, these are detailed bodies. It's not like the bottom is just a big blob of rock. I mean, they've got fingers and they've got hieroglyphs on their backs. And so, I mean, these are advanced carvings. Um, and it's crazy because many of the Moai, and there's a different name for these ones, but um, they've got like red hats on them. And when you really start to study this, it's almost like the makers of these Moai were um, trying to fashion them with the red hair 
of these elongated skulls that we see in Peru on the mainland. And so, um, I mean, obviously, like Brian Forster and many people have really brought the elongated skulls of Peru, you know, to light. And it's crazy how, um, you know, DNA analysis of those recently has proved that it wasn't just cradle headboarding, right? When you look at these crazy elongated skulls, and this is a quick rabbit trail, um, these crazy elongated skulls, some of them that still have this red hair on them, the cranial volume is up 25% larger and 60% heavier than conventional human skulls, meaning they could not have been just intentionally deformed through headboarding, right? And most of them also contain one parietal plate rather than the normal two. And so, obviously, again, in Peru, one of the best sites on Earth to see megalithic marvels. But it's interesting how there you also have this um, genetic manipulation of these crazy elongated skulls. And then you know that uh, that's not too far from Easter Island. And then when you discover that Easter Island has these same megalithic walls and some of the statues have these red-haired hats, um, it's crazy. And then I'm really excited in part three, Justin, um, I've discovered some research from reading through ship logs of other explorers that went there after Rogovine. And I am learning some mind-blowing stuff. Let me just give you a teaser. Let's just say some of the sailors that went to this island um, reported seeing giants. And what, what was the time frame of this? Like, What was the estimated uh, date of the sightings? That would have been the early 1800s, but there's actually documented reports of, of sailors seeing, we're talking live giants on Easter Island. And it doesn't mean that there's not giants roaming the land other places, but we have to understand that when you're in these massive populated areas where there's a lot of humans, normal humans, I should say, the giants aren't just out in the open. I mean, we're dealing with underground cities. The elite know where the giants are. I believe that the elite are in a league with the giants because the giants have always been in power. The Nephilim bloodlines have always been in power. Literally since their creation, they have been in power. And, and many of the ancient traditions teach that the gods, which we know to be the fallen angels, that they came up, many, many cultures teach that they lived inside the earth, that they would come up from, you know, even even though they taught mankind that they came from other galaxies, uh, they live inside the earth in these subterranean cities. Many times they would come up, they would take wives, they would create these hybrid offspring, and then they would basically teach their offspring, the Nephilim, they would teach them how to run things as a government, as literally, I mean, as, as, as tyrants. And then the, the watchers or the fallen angels, whatever you want to call them people, uh, they would go back underground and then they would come up only when they were needed or when they needed to check on things. So basically, the Nephilim were set up as a hierarchy to be the rulers of this world. And this is in many cultures and many traditions. And so the giants, I believe, based on where we are today in history with prophecy, you know, on the biblical timeline, I believe that for the most part, giants are inhabiting the subterranean cities. But they do still come up. I mean, we've got we've got information that's connecting the Vatican the Vatican having massive underground cities where there are hybrid giants living beneath the surface of the Vatican. And they do come out from time to time. 
I mean, there are situations where uh, government officials have talked about some of these large headed giants with big blue eyes coming up to certain World Bank meetings. Uh, I mean, we're, we're not talking about conspiracy theory here. The giants are here. The giants have not all died out. The giants and not to mention giants, if they're attacked, giants are not easy to kill. Uh, the, the, the true giants. Ellie Marzulli was telling me when we, we were we were hanging out when he was in town and doing a little talk. And he said that giants, a lot of the accounts he's hearing about, they have a quality of regeneration. You know, they have wounds that tend to heal. They heal in a different way than humans. And so it's kind of interesting that, that David knew that he had to cut the head off of Goliath. That is crazy stuff to think about. You know, a lot of people come into contact with these inhabitants, a lot of sailors, a lot of explorers, especially back in the days when land was uncharted. Exactly. And that's like where, uh, when you know, the gold rush of the 1800s, when people were moving westward and everybody's digging in the ground, that is really when so many these giant skulls and skeletons in America, we're talking about, begin to be discovered. Um, and I talk a lot about that on my blog. Um, one of my favorite uh, blog series that I'm most proud of is it's the Unlocking Lovelock, Attack of the Red-Haired Giant series about Lovelock Cave and, and just the crazy specimens discovered inside this cave and the oral tradition of the Paiutes. And literally, what I believe are eight-foot-plus um, red-haired giants, skeletons that were found inside this cave. It's crazy. And so even in our own country, um, again, if you grow up like me, and you just, you're just led to believe through public education that, man, uh, before the white man was the Indians, and before that there was like nothing, right? And you find out there is an ancient, ancient history in our very own land um, and then when you, again, compare that to Scripture and you compare it to Josephus and compare it to the early church fathers, even the quotes of uh, Abraham Lincoln. You know, again, mainstream thought wants, wants the masses to believe that people who talk about this kind of stuff are fringe nuts, right? Um, but one of our very own presidents, Abraham Lincoln, said this when he was visiting Niagara Falls. He said, quote, the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Uh, and then he says, contemporary with the whole race of men and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years. The mammoth and mastodon now so long dead that fragments of their monstrous bones alone testify that they ever lived have gazed on Niagara in that long, long time, never still for a single moment. So, and I love even in that quote how he, he, because again, um, mainstream thought will often say, oh, these supposed giant bones were just mastodon bones, right? And it's interesting to me in that quote how Lincoln differentiates the two. He talks about mammoth and mastodons, and then he says the bones of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds in America. So he knew. He, he knew, and so many others know. And there's this popular lie, and, and I'm not calling everybody a liar who has taught this, um, so don't don't come at me with that. But there are people out there who are teaching that it's a myth that America was inhabited by giants. I mean, who do people really think America? I mean, are we just some like 
did God just come down from heaven and create North America? I mean, come on, let's just be real. I mean, uh, people, America is just another part of the world. And even though it's a newer country, according to the American doctrine, we're an ancient piece of land that was part of the original Turtle Island, if you want to call it that. I mean, America is just as old as any other continent, but as we know it today, the United States of America, you know, we have to get past this this short history of the USA and understand what was going on on the land before we were the United States of America. And the natives knew it. Abraham Lincoln knew it. Uh, Wild Bill Hickok, you know, uh, Wild Bill Cody, he knew it. He wrote about it. This is this is our history. This is the ancient history of the land that we live on here in North America. Now, you've been into Lovelock Cave, correct? Yeah, when I entered that cave, man, it's hard to describe, but you def- I definitely got a weird vibe. Um, you know, it felt like an ancient vibe. Um, but again, as a believer, you know, we can discern things. And, and um, definitely I discerned that it wasn't just some cave. You know, there was something ancient and archaic that happened here. And, um, you know, it's like almost you see pictures of Mars. I mean, driving out into the middle of the desert where this is and northwestern Nevada, it's it's almost like you're in this otherworldly place, kind of Mars-like. And you have to fight, you know, search so hard for this cave because, you know, the powers that be, they don't want visitors digging around in there. So it's way off the beaten path. And again, the craziest thing about the Lovelock Cave um, story is first you have the oral tradition of the Northern Paiutes of how they battled in ages past this ferocious enemy known as the Sitika, who they say were cannibalistic red-haired giants, right? And so you've got their oral tradition and then you've got their written account of Sarah Winnemucca who was one of the Paiutes, um, she was the first ever uh, Native American woman to write uh, a book. And she wrote a book called Life Among the Paiutes. And in her book, and I detail this in the blog series, she talks about the people eaters who lived along the Humboldt River who would eat her people. And she talks about how she, uh, her most precious treasured garment is this dress that her and her family had passed down from generations that had the red hair sewn into it. Crazy, right? And then when you read her story in her book, she talks about how they, an alliance of tribes formed to defeat this savage enemy, and they did so by pushing them back into a large cave and and setting it ablaze. And... um, so that's what she says in her book. And so, you know, people just thought this was, you know, some, some crazy oral tradition until in 1911, these, these bat guano miners were um, mining for bat guano, which they use for fertilizer, and start digging around in this cave. And guess what they find? Some incredible advanced artifacts. Um, but again, they find a cache of large giant skeletons with red hair on them. Now, this is the cave, according to oral traditions, where the Paiutes forced the giants into the cave and they literally burned them to death. Yeah. Now, I'm just going to bring up this this little tidbit of information 
for those who may not be familiar. And I say that kind of sarcastically, but not really, because some of you may really not know this. Uh, this might be your first time listening to the fourth watch. But in the book of Enoch, it explains that when the giants died, they were not fully man and they were not fully fallen angel. And so they did not go to the normal place of the soul where man would go. And so what would happen, according to the book of Enoch, is they became what in those days were called earth spirits. And the earth spirits literally would be what we would call demons today, where people get demon possessed. They're possessed by these ancient spirit entities that were hybrids because they weren't human, because they weren't fully angel. They did not go to the normal place where humans go. And so what happened was that they became earth spirits. Now, if these giants, if the if the stories are true, and I believe they're true, uh, where the natives killed these giants in this cave, that tells me that there's going to be some heavy spiritual presence of demons in the region because they were killed right there in that very cave. Absolutely. And the more you learn about the cave, and again, we have not just the oral tradition, we have not just the autobiography from the Native American woman, but we've got the writings and that's what I detail in this blog series from the original archaeologists that were sent out from Cal Berkeley. And again, they were um, writing in a time, you know, the 1911 and 1912, where it wasn't so politically correct, right? <laughs> and so we have these guys on record literally verifying the legend. Um, they said the cave entrance and face is littered with charred uh, burning arrow shafts. Right. And this kind of stuff. And and they literally um, they make some cryptic comments in the book they wrote about their discoveries. Um, but they they basically found this humanoid looking skull that looks just like this crazy stuff we're seeing in Peru. And so I've got a picture of that on there. Um, we've got the um, testimony of the original miners that were digging around in there. Um, that they found red-haired giants. I mean, we've got these guys on record. They were real people. I've got newspaper articles um, back from, uh, you know, 1911 and 12, and uh, let's see, even 1930s that talk about um, these other eight, nine, ten-foot giants found in the lake bed in and around Lovelock Cave, and so you've just got this overwhelming amount of evidence. And then the coolest part is, um, in part three, I really break down all about the giants that were discovered. And what's cool is there's a museum. Let me pull it up here. Got all these windows open. Um, the Winnemucca Museum, um, not far from Lovelock Cave. Um, I've got photographs of several people who claim to have been there and were allowed to go back into a private room and view these huge skulls. And there's one of them I call the War Daddy. It's this red skull, and it appears to have double rows of teeth. And this thing was photographed in the 70s and the early 2000s, and it's the same skull, and it dwarfs these other skulls around it. And... Um, I guess what I'm saying is we even have modern-day accounts and pictures of people who have seen this. We have the curator of the Humboldt Museum herself. I've got her testimony saying 
we have to hide them because the state of Nevada doesn't recognize them as legitimate artifacts. Now, why do you think, I mean, obviously there's a cover-up going on there. I don't want to take away from that, definitely. Um, but why do you think that this skull has reddish tint to it? I mean, where do you think the red comes from? It's really strange. Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I don't have totally have the answer to it. I haven't totally um, actually considered the color of the skull, but um, I know when you look up close, you can almost see what appears to be double rows of uh, teeth. And it's just herkin. I mean, it, you can tell it fit on the body of at least an eight, nine, ten footer. And again, I corroborate elsewhere in the series all these other giant skeletons that were found in the Humboldt Dry Lake bed. Um, I reference another skull. Um, you know, I've got newspaper articles, so it's crazy. Um, there was mummies found in Spirit Cave not far from Lovelock Cave, and they were carbon dated 9,400 years old. And this was by Douglas W. Owsley. He was the division head of physical anthropology at the Smithsonian back when he did this. And um, it, the test revealed that the mummies at Spirit Cave were of Caucasian origin with a long face and cranium most closely resembling Nordic people. You know, and so, again, you just have all of these corroborating pieces that, um, for me, really back up the Lovelock Cave story. Oh, and the craziest thing is when I went inside the cave, the most shocking thing that you immediately see is the roof of the cave is charred black. The entire cave roof is charred black like the whole thing was on fire at one point. And so... And then the duck decoys found in this cave alone were, uh, they're the most advanced duck decoys ever found in the world right there. So when you kind of study that region of northwestern Nevada, um, years ago, it, was, it wasn't all desert. There was a lake there called Lake Lahontan. And it was an ancient, you know, prehistoric lake that covered much of northwestern Nevada about 12,000 years ago. And according to the oral tradition, um, the, the Paiutes say that the giants used the tool to weave rafts and navigate the lake. And they would literally um, come upon the Indians with s surprise attacks and capture women and steal their women. And so um, that's another name for the Sitaka. Sitaka actually means, guess what, tool eaters. And so they would... Um, I believe that's why the advanced duck decoys were there, found inside the cave and many other artifacts that I break down in there. This advanced calendar and all this crazy stuff is um, where they lived. It was it was really this giant lake. Um, and so life for them was cruising around on these, um, you know, these boats they would make. And they would take the women, obviously, for probably multiple purposes. But clearly, they were taking the women, and they were they were forcing themselves on the women to create more of their own descendants. Absolutely, and, and again, this is generations, you know, probably removed, maybe from the original Genesis six. And so, um, you know, again, most of the largest skeletons found were about ten footers. We've got that documented. You know, we've got basically seven to ten footers. And um, that's still a pretty big giant. Yeah, and if you think about it, 
people say that, you know, they, they would assume, well, if, if the Giants took, took wives, you know, they basically took wives and they had children with them. But a lot of people have kind of fantasized and romanticized the story. Um, according to many of the, the oral traditions, when the Giants, or, you know, would take wives, I mean, even going back to the, the, the fallen angels taking the wives, but when a woman was taken against her will and she was impregnated, she was pretty much um, disposed of. I mean, most of the time they didn't, you know, according to Native Americans, they say the women did not survive the birth because there was something so strange in her womb that the the hybrid offspring would, would survive. The hybrid offspring would be born, but the woman would die. And so you basically, you'd go kidnap a woman, or they would go kidnap a woman, impregnate her. She would die during childbirth, and so they would have to go continue. It was like a cycle. They had to keep going back and kidnapping more women to create their Nephilim offspring. It wasn't like the women got to grow up with their Nephilim children. I mean... <laughs> no, you're right. And that's, that's such a crazy thought that you bring up. And Gary Wayne, um, as you know him real well, um, crazy how he, he hit on that when um, I got to interview him because I read about that in his book and it just blew my mind that they would literally have to do this ancient form of cesarean, you know, to get these, these Nephilim hybrids out because the mother would literally die. She couldn't birth them naturally. Now, here's one for you, D, and I'm sure you've probably heard this somewhere. I've heard accounts, you know, just everybody picture with me, if you will, uh, those old science programs where there's like a nest of snake eggs. And there are certain snakes out there that, that are born with eggs, and they have what's called an egg tooth. It's like a little sharp little, like a little knife tip on their lip, and it falls off after they're born. But they literally cut through the egg when it's time and they come out. I'm sure people, people listening, I'm sure you've seen these videos. Um, some snakes give birth live and some of them lay eggs. So anyway, my point of this is I've heard stories of these, because we have to remember that these Nephilim giants, they're not normal. I believe that Nephilim are, are extra dimensional. I believe they can, you know, that's a whole nother talk for another discussion, another night. But um, I've heard stories of some of these things ripping out of the mother's womb, literally ripping out. Wow. Ripping out of their mother, you know, performing their own C-section, if you will. Wow. It might have been Josh Peck that, uh, that brought that up. I'm trying to remember. It, it was on one of the older shows I did. Uh, I don't remember if we talked in the show or if it was before the show, but that came up in conversation because you're dealing with, a, you know, an offspring that was never meant to be born. There's no natural instinct that would be in a human that's going to be in these Nephilim embryos. So, you know, you just picture this thing ripping out of a woman that that in and of itself, she's going to die no matter what. But then the other thing I wanted to mention, and I don't want to go back. I don't want to backtrack too much. But you mentioned about, you know, a lot of people say that the elongated skulls, you know, are from cradle boarding. Well, look, we have I think it's in the Paracas Museum. We have evidence of uh, a mummy that died. Uh, well, it's a mummy now. <laughs> a mummy. <laughs> a mummy died. Uh, an impregnated elongated skull hybrid female had a hybrid embryo in her womb. They're both mummified. You know, they have them now separately and you can see a Nephilim embryo with an elongated skull. So if the cradle boarding is going to be the, you know, the Smithsonian's answer to all these skulls, well, they're just completely denying actual facts because we have Nephilim embryos on display in South America. And they've got elongated skulls just as well. 
But one thing I want to I want to get you to break down something else. I know we don't have a whole lot of time left tonight, but there's something else that they found in this cave. And it's it's pretty chilling. I'm just going to say it like that. It, it's it's pretty chilling and it looks totally demonic. Tell us about the humanoid. So I was shocked to find this. I was looking through the appendices of Loud and Harrington. Those are two guys from UC Berkeley who did the original excavations in Lovelock Cave. And, and so I'm, I'm digging through, um, you know, the pictures, the, the old pictures they have in their book. And, and literally, it's like my heart almost stops when I see this photograph because, you know, all the other research I've done up to then, I know, I know what a humanoid looks like. You know, it's, it's something that looks obviously alien. And so, again, um, in the, what, what literally Loudon Harrington themselves found and what they have in their book is this picture of what appears to be a childlike humanoid that they say was mummified and wrapped in a woven robe. And when you look at it, and you consider the size of the skull in comparison to the size of the body. You look at the placement of the large eye sockets with the smallish face and jaw. It's obvious this is another strange genetic anomaly, right? Such as the red hair and the gigantic size of the Sitika. And so was this one of their, uh, was this a child, you know, genetic hybrid? Um Whatever it is, it's it's clear, I mean, just upon look that it doesn't appear human. But it doesn't look like a normal Nephilim either. That's what's really strange about it. I mean, like you said, there's something alien about this thing. And, I, I mean, it's almost like you're looking at what would be inside of a gray alien head. Exactly. And this isn't fake. I mean, this is clearly real. I mean, this this is this is archaeology at its finest right here. I mean, you're looking at this thing, you wonder, is it a child or is it possibly... Not a child. I mean, what if this thing wasn't a child? I mean, what if this was some type of little hybrid? And that, that is a total another great question is, you know, is this something else? And again, this is right out of the book of the archaeologists themselves. And um, it's just mind blowing to, to have their testimonies, to have these photographs. Also, in part two of this series, you'll see is a gigantic pestle. And a pestle is this, you know, ancient instrument used to grind stuff. But this thing um, is huge. And we have the curator of the uh, museum in Reno on record as saying that uh, it was found below Lovelock Cave. And he goes on to say it was well within the Sitaka territory and it could have been one of the pestles used by the red-headed giants and might account for its large size. <laughs> I guarantee you the picture doesn't do justice. No, the picture doesn't do justice. There's a YouTube video of it you can find as well. Um, but, I mean, this thing has got to be – I mean, it's it's a couple feet long and it's it's got to weigh – I mean, it's got to weigh a ton. Obviously, when you look at the picture – with the um, museum curator touching it, obviously it wasn't made for some normal human being as a tool to use. I mean, generally when someone's using these, uh, if you go back to the Native American traditions where they're using pestles and, and they're grinding corn or they're grinding you know, herbs or whatever, what have you, 
um, you would have one hand on the pestle and then you would have the other hand holding the bowl, right? Yeah. So in this event, looking, this guy's two hands don't even make up, I mean, a third of this thing. So right off the bat, the giant that was using this would have at minimum, I mean, if two hands make up a third, right? You know what I'm saying? So, uh, cause it's a one handed tool. So, I mean, you're dealing with a, a giant that would have to be six times larger for the, than the average man to be able to use one hand on this. Absolutely. I want to make one more statement on the humanoid and then we'll move on. When I see this humanoid, I notice a few things about it besides the, the gray alien look. Uh, I notice that it does not have the traditional Nephilim jaw structure. It does not have what we would call the viper jaw structure. A lot of the Nephilim skulls have the de- what we would call a detachable jaw, very much that we, you know, like what we see in snakes. Um, we don't see that with this thing. It, it almost has a nothing for a mouth. <laughs> I don't even know if that's proper grammar, but it, it almost has nothing there, um, which makes me think gray alien. Now, the other thing I want to point out about this thing is that it reminds me there's a museum in the UK and there's a, a fantastic video that's out online. Somebody's gone through and, and just the cinematography is great, but they do a basically a video walkthrough and kind of a, a mini documentary on the cryptid museum in the UK. And I don't have time to explain the story on it, but it's fascinating. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll have to break it down in another show, but in this cryptid museum, there was a collector that had a bunch of mummified cryptids, stuff that will probably blow half of the world's mind if they saw it. But he has some skulls in there of what looks almost identical to this humanoid. I mean, even even the bone structure, because he's got a full skeleton, or at least almost a full skeleton, of this almost identical being. So whatever this was, and again, the guy who owned the cryptid collection, he's dead now. I mean, it was an old explorer. But they basically found in his apartment when he died, and he had a whole room filled with crates. And they were loaded up with all these uh, these ancient cryptids that were mummified and i mean he's got what looks like dragon remains mini dragons i mean all kinds of crazy stuff but he does have uh one of these little humanoids if you want to call it that and it kind of makes me wonder you know i don't know where he found it because he was he was a traveler he would go all around the world and collect these things he was very wealthy so i don't know what continent he found it on it's possible that he might have collected it here but i have a feeling that these humanoids, just like this one that they found in Lovelock Cave, I don't believe that it's specific to our region. I believe these things are showing up all over the place. Very interesting. Very interesting. And yeah, Lovelock Cave, it's it's a very ancient place. So you've got generations, you know, when you read about the 10,000 artifacts and specimens that were discovered, I mean, they're not all from, you know, the same little period. I mean, they span generations. And so could it be that this was, you know, considered a hot spot where there was weird stuff going on because of, uh, you know, these ancient giant Nephilim that were in there. And did they draw other, you know, did they draw their other humanoids or whatever there? The thing that makes me, it, it kind of chills me to think that this thing was found in the cave, this little humanoid. It was found in the cave. I mean, was there stuff going on in that cave before, before they were rushed off into the cave to be killed? Right. You know, there, there's questions that, you know, we may never have the answers for, but they're definitely worthy questions. And I mean, this thing here doesn't look charred. You know, this little humanoid doesn't look like it was burned up in a fire. Um, obviously, I'm not there with it in person. I can't, I can't, you know, go over it with a fine tooth comb, 
but it doesn't look like it was burned. So there, there's definitely some questions that I have about this. Closing thoughts on Lovelock Cave. Um, when you made your way into it, were, were there any parts that were closed off? Were there any parts that potentially could have led down into a subterranean city? You know, when I went in there, you immediately notice that the state has built this big platform in there. It's, it's basically this deck. And so they built that, you know, they want to keep you right there. Um, again, the cave is literally so dark. I was so mad at myself that I was so excited to get out there. I didn't even bring a flashlight. So all I had was my phone, uh, which once you get in there, it is so dark. You know, it's, it's hard to see. And so I definitely believe when you look at the aerial view of the cave that I've got on the blog, um, and when you learn more about the region, there's caves all over. So I have no doubt that they could easily connect underneath via tunnel. Again, Spirit Cave was another big one nearby. So you've got all these crazy caves. Um, but again, when you go there just as a normal observer, if you don't know, if you haven't done your research, you're simply led to believe by um, everything you read from the state that this was all just, um, this is just an old cave where Native American artifacts were found, and that's it. That's all they say. Well, there goes American science for you right there, trying to push the live evolution, trying to discredit what the Bible teaches, and trying to strip us of everything supernatural unless it's a New Age perspective. But as we close out tonight, um, just want to let everybody know all the details they need to know about megalithicmarvels.com. If you go to megalithicmarvels.com, you're going to find a plethora of re- just everything's free, free resources, articles, uh, links. There's podcasts on here. I mean, great stuff on here. Uh, everybody needs to check it out. Megalithicmarvels, all one word, dot com. And D. Olson uh, created this website. And, uh, you know, I said it in the intro, but D is a researcher, an adventurer, and a blogger. And this website is basically allowing everybody to come in and join him on his journey as he reconstructs the prehistoric past. Tell everybody how they can get in touch with you and uh, anything you want to share with us before we close. Oh, man, just uh, honored to be on the show, Justin. Again, big fan of you and your uh, your radio program, your ministry. Um, Megalithic Marvels, again, yeah, like Justin said, it's free. Just free to be a resource and really a, a educational tool, you know, on all these topics regarding ancient technology, megaliths, artifacts, um, even recent discoveries that deal with all this stuff from a biblical perspective, you know. Again, the ancient alien theories out there and the Anunnaki and, you know, you've got all these other streams. And um, I believe that as the church, as believers, we need to have a very educated, articulate answer um, for these topics. Because here's the deal. Um, I believe atheism is dying as people realize, man, we live in a spiritual realm. That's why all of these um Reality shows, you know, ghosts and paranormal activity. It's so popular because people are searching. And um, I say we point them to God. And so, uh, yeah, check it out. You can also hit subscribe by clicking on one of the articles. And then on the right side, there's you can subscribe to the mailing list. Uh, i got all my social media links on there. Um, so, man, would love to connect with you guys and i'm just excited about 2017 and uh 
researching and uh, man, just enjoying the journey with guys like you, Justin. Thanks so much. Amen, man. It is my pleasure. It's my honor, man. And um, it was just, I got to say thanks to Gary Wayne because like Gary, Gary contacted me and, and told me about your post uh, about the 17 researchers for 2017. I went and checked out your website and then by the time I, I went to your page and I opened up, I clicked the email button to email you. And then I see I had a couple messages from you or at least one. I think you wrote me a message and sent me a link. And I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm late to the game. And uh, I'm just I'm so glad to be able to connect. You're posting your stuff on Facebook, too. So that's a good way for people to, to follow your work as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I got my personal page, uh, group there page. And then I've got uh, the Megalithic Marvels page as well. So, yeah, find me. Let's connect and um, research together and uncover this incredible stuff that really points us back to God and how awesome he is. Amen. Amen. I tell you guys, you know, the Bible, I love how, how uh, Michael Heiser talks about rereading your Bible for the first time. Like, <laughs> and I'm probably misquoting him, but, but that's basically the gist of what he says. When you go back to your, to your Bible after having your eyes opened to the supernaturalism of God and the supernaturalism of his power and his plan for humanity, when you go back and reread it after waking up, that's probably the, the most, you know, the layman's terms. Once you've woken up and you go back to read the Bible, it's, it's different. It's like you're seeing it now for what it is, not for the way it's been taught in a rationalistic approach. And so by learning these things, it just it opens up our minds and it helps us better understand the days before the flood and the sin that God hated so much that he destroyed the antediluvian world. I mean, that's how much God hates sin. That's how much he hates these hybrids. That's how much he hates this wickedness and this alchemy. And I believe that we are seeing an influx of the very same types of things that were going on before the flood. We're seeing their return and they're manifesting now as we approach the time of the Great Tribulation. And so I think it's important to understand what was going on before the flood, because this is what Solomon said, and Solomon was the wisest man. You know, there's debate whether or not Solomon uh, died in faith, because by the, you know, towards the end of his life, he had built altars to other gods for his many wives. Solomon being the wisest man, he asked for wisdom. And by the way, you can have wisdom, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible says God will give you wisdom, he will grant you wisdom if you'll ask for it. And he will give it to you liberally if you ask for it. But Solomon asked for wisdom. He could have asked for anything. He could have asked for the riches of this world, which he did get riches, but he asked for wisdom above everything. And Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Just like the things that happened before the flood, they're coming back and they're going to be ramping up before the tribulation and especially ramping up during the tribulation. So we got to know what we're dealing with here. So, D, thanks so much for coming on the fourth watch. Man, it's it's awesome talking with somebody who's put in the time and the research and, and especially the fact that you've been actually out on the field. You've actually been to the Lovelock Caves. And on your website, you got a video of some of the, the stuff you filmed out there. Uh, definitely recommend everybody check out megalithicmarvels.com. You'll definitely want to check it out. Subscribe. And, uh, man, until the next time we meet, man, God bless you and have a great night. Thanks, Justin. Well, that was an interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. With so many strange topics at our fingertips, it is paramount that we act upon James chapter 1, verse 5. Let me take you there. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. 
This means that if we sincerely ask our Heavenly Father for wisdom, He will gladly give it to us generously, without any form of disapproval, without any reproach. God will give us that wisdom that we ask for. You see, God actually wants us to be wise. In Matthew 10, 16, we're told to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. So we're told to be wise, and then we're told that if we lack wisdom, to simply ask for it, and it will definitely and generously be granted unto us. Anytime that the Bible tells us to do something, we are guaranteed that God will provide all the means necessary for us to attain his command. And I say this in love, but we all need more wisdom. I know I do. And if we're all being honest, we would all agree that every last one of us needs more wisdom. We need more godly wisdom. So this week, I want to encourage you to seek that wisdom in prayer. The days are getting more deceptive and we need spiritual wisdom more now than ever. And so I want to encourage you to really seek that out this week. Make that a focus of your prayer life. And for those of you who have never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you to stay tuned and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation. Until the next time we meet again, God bless and good night. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted his holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of his word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins, and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process, and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He is willing to meet you right where you are, and He will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, who shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless, before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God. 
as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with him based on his terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the fourth watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network.